All right, it's Sunday morning, and uh, I'm trying to teach you the Bible, what it's about. Uh, I'm connecting Ezekiel with Revelation. And I want us to go back over here in Ezekiel, the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. Sometimes I get up here, I don't know exactly where to start, but I've got all these things in mind. I have said to you, now if I feed this to you, perhaps you'll get a hold of some of it, and in time you'll get a hold of more. Ezekiel is in Babylon. You've got to know where these prophets are to know what they're doing. Ezekiel, if this is Babylon over here on this side of the board, Babylon, and on this side of the board over here is Israel. Israel, and Israel is on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a little thin strip of land right here above that is what we call Lebanon Lebanon it's, it's an old ancient word comes from L-E-B-A-N-A-H which is the word moon it's one of the words for moon another word for moon is Y-E-A-R-E-C-H Yarek we get our son's Eric's name from that. And uh, Yarek means moon. It means ruler. Well, Lebanon means moon, and that is the old ancient land of Tyre and Sidon. If you said Tyre, it was the same thing as saying Sidon. There were two different cities, but there were heads of the fire worship along with Babylon. And because Israel kept going after other gods, God says, I will scatter you for 500 years under kings from Saul to the last king, Zedekiah. You find this in Israel's history. Uh, their history, the history of Israel is First Samuel. We're talking about the history of Israel as a nation. From First Samuel through Second Chronicles. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles uh, to the Jew was called one book, the book of the kings. What's the difference between sec first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles? The most of the scholars tell us First and Second Kings was a view from the viewpoint of the kings of Israel. Kings and First and Second Chronicles is a view from the priesthood. That's kind of amazing because we talk about the priest and the king and God hath made us priests and kings and priests offer acceptable sacrifice and we give our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. So being the kings, we're only kings because Christ is in us. And then uh, we're priests because priests offer, accept, excuse me, 
priests offer acceptable sacrifice, kings pronounce righteous judgment. Look not at the outward appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So we're the priest and the king now. Now, we're talking about where Ezekiel is. When you're studying something like Ezekiel, you must know where he is in order to understand his book. You've got to know that he is over here in Babylon. He was carried away. When Israel kept going after these gods, God kept telling them, I'm going to move you out of the land. I'll move northern Israel in 722 B.C. That's the ten northern tribes. And they were led by the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was the second-born son of Joseph. I've said this so many times. Uh, Ephraim, what? N O R T H E R N. Mary, I don't care. They don't care. They they're gonna get it. Uh, Ephraim was the second-born son of Joseph. You can find him given northern Israel in Genesis the forty-eighth chapter, where J- Jacob puts his hand on the head of Ephraim when he crosses his hands. Southern Judah was carried away in five eighty-six B.C. And they've been carried away until this past century. They've been scattered all over the world until May 14th, 1948. That's when they came back together. They were pronounced a nation again since Nebuchadnezzar carried them away back here. When they were carried away, you've got prophets that prophesy after their deportation in 722 and 586. Southern Judah had three deportations, one in 605 B.C., one in 597, 96, that's an approximate date, B.C., and one in 586 B.C., but the 586 B.C. was the final straw with God. That's when God destroyed destroyed southern Judah, had the temple brought down, had the temple just leveled, had the city leveled. When they would level the city, they would put all the buildings down They would burn the town. That's what they did with Israel. Burn everything in there. Most people don't know that Israel was destroyed in 586 B.C. and they weren't a nation until May of 1948. Most people don't know that. They know about the bondage in Egypt, but they don't know that was only 400 years. But the captivity was 2,600 years. And the reason all of this war is going on in the Middle East is because Israel has come back. They've been declared a nation by the National Council. National Council of the United Nations uh, 
of the, of the United Nations at Tel Aviv that was the capital back then in 1948. They were made a nation under the pressure of Harry Truman, our president. He was an old Baptist from Independence, Missouri, and they considered Harry Truman a hero in Israel because he pressured the world into declaring them a nation. The reason he did that is six million Jews were killed during World War II by Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. Now, people don't even know that's what's going on over here. Now, you have to understand, Ezekiel was carried away. It's believed he was in this second deportation. These first two were peaceful. Were peaceful deportations. It's believed that Jehoiakim was carried away in this deportation here. This last 586, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came in with his armies from the east and he literally took Israel to the ground, took these big ropes and pulled down the temple. They had huge stones in the temple of God. Here's the temple here. They had huge stones. They tore down the walls. They tore everything down. They carried away the brazen sea. They carried away the Ark of the Covenant. Everything was wiped out of Israel. It looked like a wasteland. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. Ezekiel is over here in Babylon. Is in Babylon. He was carried away it's believed in that second deportation. Daniel is over in Babylon, is in Babylon also, and they're over here. So when you're reading Daniel and Ezekiel, Daniel in the ninth chapter, right as he's given the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel is crying and weeping to the Lord and saying, what have we done? He classified himself with the rest of Israel that had gone after all these idol gods. All you have to do is read anywhere in Daniel, anywhere in Ezekiel, and they'll tell you what, where they are, what's happening. Daniel was weeping and said, how long are we going to be in this captivity? How long are you going to keep us over here before you delivered us? Ezekiel is over here. He's over here in Babylon, but God takes him up in visions, kind of like he did John over in Revelation, showing him what he's going to do in Revelation. Showing him what he's going to be doing and Ezekiel has these visions of how Israel is going to be destroyed. He's prophesying somewhere in the neighborhood of 597, 96, 95, and God's showing him what he's going to do in 586 B.C. He's also showing Ezekiel the apostasy of Israel. You can look. 
that first chapter, I'm not going to go through it again, but we see the chariots of the Babylonians coming in when he says, I saw, behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. That's very significant. The whirlwind coming out of the north, we have established that the chariots were like whirlwinds when they come riding through the land they would stir up like little whirlwinds behind the wheels there in verse 4 whirlwinds came out of the north out of the north is significant because when they were coming out of the north hold on here they had to come If they're coming out of the north, here's Babylon over here. All of this down here is the Arabian Desert. They could not travel across the Arabian Desert. In other, here's Babylon on the Euphrates River. Here's the Tigris River. And here is Nineveh. Somewhere about the place of Baghdad today. Well, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria That was Upper Babylon. They're the ones that carried northern Israel, the ten northern tribes away. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was Assyrians were Caucasians. They the Caucasus Mountains is right here. These these mountains between the the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea is the Caucasus. Comes from the word Kaf or Meghoff, or Magog, and it comes from that. So they come down here. The reason Jonah didn't want to go and warn the people of Nineveh was because their barbaric ways. They slaughtered. The Caucasians are the most, this is my ancestors, they're the most barbaric people that ever lived. Before the Assyrians were the Scythians. They were butchers. They would they could ride like the American Indian without holding on to the reins and fire a bow and arrow, shoot a bow and arrow and hit a target at fifty yards just dead center. They were extremely dangerous people. They would cut off the heads of they'd go in and conquer a town maybe cut off the heads of 100,000 people and stacked the heads in front of a city. That's how butcherous the Caucasians were. That's how the Assyrians were Caucasians. They were descendants of Japheth. Japheth was the oldest son of Noah, and the mountains of Ararat were here in, in eastern Turkey. There's a chain of mountains of Rarat, they were in eastern Turkey, and when they landed, when the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, they, the three sons of Noah migrated. Japheth migrated up here into the Caucasus area, and those were the Caucasians. Ham migrated down here to Egypt to put P-U-T to Ethiopia down in here. Shem migrated down to the land of what we would call Iraq 
or Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldea was the area of Babylon. When it says Chaldean, it's talking about Babylonian. So, since Shem migrated down here, one of his descendants was Abraham. So when God gets ready to call Abraham to do his work, he has to call him out of Ur of the Chaldees. But he doesn't call him through the desert because you can't travel in thousands of miles in the desert. So he called him north. He, Abraham didn't know where he was going, the Bible says in the 11th chapter, but he followed God and he led him up here north. So when it says judgment comes out of the north, you had to go up north of Israel to come into Israel. And that's what this is talking about here. So this word north has significance when it says a whirlwind came out of the north. That was the chariots. Well, I've gone through this and I've talked about uh, on the sides of the chariots were the cherubim. And in verse, it talks about these four beasts that had four faces in verse 6. And they had the, you see their faces, they had the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, there in verse 10, and the face of a man. We saw that is the covenant of God out of the ninth chapter of Genesis. Now, so he's talking about the destruction that's going to come. That's not coming yet because he is in Babylon seeing a vision of what's going to happen to Israel. Now, let's go over here. Uh, he shows him another place, what Israel is doing in the 8th chapter, how that they're weeping. The women are weeping for Tammuz. This is uh, what men would call Easter or Ishtar. And they were weeping for Tammuz in verse 14 of chapter 8. And then he sees 25 men... You have to understand what he is seeing is a vision. I don't know how God this did this. If he picked Ezekiel up, some kind of spiritual vision, and showed him the temple over here, and showed him inside the temple, precincts of the temple. The men who served inside the temple were the Levites. And they offered all the sacrifices on the ark on the on the brazen brazen altar and the high priest would offer the sacrifice on the day of atonement the tenth day of the seventh month on the ark of the covenant he would sprinkle the ark of the covenant seven times with the blood of a goat blood of a goat that was the scape that was uh, the opposite of the scapegoat in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. And then they had you had the uh, brazen sea down here, and we showed a picture of that a while ago. The brazen sea was where the priest would wash. But you can't study this without understanding where these people are. There's the brazen sea. Now, if you're studying Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the last prophet, was the last prophet that was walking through the streets of Jerusalem. God tells Jeremiah, 
in the first chapter of Jeremiah, verse 4, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, Jeremiah, and I ordained thee a prophet to the nation of Israel. Go to all the gates of the city. They had a different gate on the north, on the south, on the east, and on the west. They had the fish gate, the dung gate, the sheep gate. That would be where they sell these various items for the use of the people. So, the people that were inside that could work in the precincts of the temple, this would be the precincts. It would surround the the uh, temple. The temple was the same thing as it had the same dimensions inside as this tabernacle. That was a temporary or a mobile temple. And we're the tabernacle of God. We're mobile in this world. And uh, we are the temple of God now. We're the temple of God. He sprinkles our hearts instead of a literal ark of the covenant. And, And all the people inside the precincts of the temple... No one was allowed in there unless they were Levites. You had to be a Levite. You had to be a high priest, a descendant of Aaron, who was a Levite. He was Moses' older brother, three years older than Moses. And he was the only man that could sprinkle either him or one of his sons. You inherited being a priest, being a Levite, and you inherited being a high priest, and it had to go back to Aaron. Now... In order to read Ezekiel, you've got to understand he's being picked up and shown what's going on in Israel. In this 8th chapter, it shows that there's 25 men standing with their backs toward the temple faced east. They're standing somewhere between the porch, Solomon's porch, and this this brazen uh, altar made of brass or copper, some say. There's 25 men standing here facing the east, worshiping the sun, having a sunrise service 600 years before Jesus is born. Before Jesus. Now, He keeps going here, and you can be reading all through here, and he'll tell you why. Ezekiel's going to tell you why God's going to scatter. I'm going to move on to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is equal. Chapter 9. Ezekiel 9. is equal to Revelation, the seventh chapter. And because the same thing is going to happen, God's going to protect His people, not physically, but spiritually. He has His people. He has a seal on His people. The word seal, every time you find it in the New Testament, is the word sphragis, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-S. 
That is the word seal. It means an official mark. It means ownership. How are we sealed? Well, I'll show you that in a minute. It means it is a form of the word sphragizo, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-Z-O. That's the verb. This is the noun here. Sphragizo means a signature. It means whenever the king would write something and stamp his signature on it, the kings had a had a ring that had a seal on it. It was an official seal. They would either stamp it in clay, they'd wrap a scroll up, stamp the scroll, or they would stamp it in hot wax, and it was against the law to open that, uh, to unseal something unless you had, unless you were worthy. When you see there in Revelation, the fourth chapter, you come to the last few verses, and it says that the one who sat upon the throne, which would be Christ, was the only one that was worthy to open these seven seals, or these seven sphragizo, sphragis. The only one who had the signature and was worthy to open that seal was Christ. He's the only one that could do that. Now, what I want to do is to show you how this is equal to that seventh chapter. Let's look at chapter 9 of Ezekiel. And he's talking about before the whole idea of this. What's God going to do before he brings destruction for destruction upon Israel. Israel here in the ninth chapter in the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. He's going to do the same thing he does in Revelation 7. He's going to put his seal, his sphragis, his signature of ownership on his people. He's going to put his signature. Now, I want, to, I want you to let, kind of follow with me through some of this ninth chapter, and from time to time, we'll go over to the seventh chapter of, of uh, Revelation. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them to have that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. He's talking about not just the men that are the priests and the kings over Israel. He's talking about the heavenly people that have got charge. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's ink horn. What he's going to do is mark certain ones 
that were weeping and crying because of Israel's sin. Only those that were repentant. And with a rider's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. This is spiritual language. You have to understand that. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. The, the cherubim inside the temple, you had a cherubim on each end of the Ark of the Covenant, and the wings would reach over and touch, the Bible says, they would touch the sides of the inner sanctuary. They had one on each end, and these cherub were these four-faced beasts. I'm not going to go through that again. That has to do with the covenant. Y'all understand that, don't you? Now, to go up from between the cherubim would be God who sat down. That was his throne. That's where he ruled Israel from. And Israel is going after other gods. Is there any reason to argue about why he's going to bring judgment on Israel? Most people don't know Israel was destroyed in the Old Testament. At the end of Second Chronicles, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, that 36th chapter, Israel is annihilated, just brought to the ground. And also, you'll find southern Judah is being leveled in Second Chronicles. I've said this so many times. 36th chapter, that's the end of Israel. You can read that, and it's very simple. The king of the Chaldees comes in, destroys Israel, takes away all the furniture of the house of God that's in God's house, and Israel is no more. You'll also find the king's account of that in Second Kings, the 25th chapter. Those are very important. Read those when you get home. That's going to show you southern Judah, which was the last of Israel's nations to fall. There were two tribes in southern Judah. But Ezekiel is prophesying the destruction of southern Judah, southern Israel, because northern Israel has already been carried away and destroyed by the Assyrians. So, you need... And if you want to look and review... Northern Israel being destroyed, Second Kings, the seventeenth chapter. It'll go through verse by verse and tell you why they were destroyed. They kept going after other gods. Read it. It's not hard to understand. I'm not going to read it right now. I got too many other things to talk about. Now let's keep reading. And the glory of the Lord of Israel was gone up from the cherub. What is the glory of God of Israel? That's Christ. Look at Hebrews, the first chapter. Hebrews, the first chapter. All right. Hebrews, first chapter. God who hath at sundry times in diverse, diverse, various kinds of 
manners spake in time past unto the Father by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, referring to Christ, being the brightness of his glory, Christ is the glory of God, and the express image of his person. So we're talking about Christ being the glory. And if you look at Psalms 19, and then we'll come back to this verse. Psalms 19. When I did a series on the gospel and the stars, I used this verse constantly through that. Through that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory is Christ. We established that in Hebrews 1 and 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. I went through the, the Maseroth, declaring Christ, and every one of the signs of the Maseroth, or what we call the Zodiac. There were 12 signs in the Maseroth. Each one had a decon, which were minor signs in the Zodiac or in the Maseroth. Now, not going to go into that now. Now, let's get back to where we were. And the glory of God of Israel was going up from the cherub. So it's talking about Christ going up from the cherub. Evidently, he's going to orchestrate this fall of southern Judah. And he gives instructions. Whereupon he was the whereupon he was to was to the threshold of the house, and he called the man clothed with linen. He's giving the instruction. Christ is giving the instruction to the man clothed with linen. Usually the high priest was clothed with linen when he was going to offer a sacrifice, white linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads. The word mark, T-A-U. T. Well, let me put it down here. Tau. T-A-U. It has the same meaning as the New Testament word as phrogis. It means a signature. Same thing as seal. A signature, a, an etching, a etching. You're going to find in the, in the, book of Revelation that the word mark mark goes on the in the Old Testament mark means a signature in the New Testament mark is the word C-H-A-R-A-G M-A charagma it means character whatever the character of the beast is we know the character of the beast is self because the beast is a Babylonian system and Babylon according to Revelation 17 5 
The Babylon was the mother of all harlots or idolatry. The mother. And she was founded on self, on let us make us a name. Let us make us a name in Genesis 11 and 4. Make us a name. You cannot leave any of the character of Satan when you get over here. God is going to put his mark upon those. From mark, you get the word character. C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. It would be our word character. And also from karagna comes the word karax. Karax means a stake on a boundary. Every time I think of boundary, I think of horizo. That means bound to bound in the light. Because the word horizo is our word horizon, to bound in the light. Prohorizo is the word predestinate. So God's going to put his mark upon those that receive the mark of the beast. Where? did the first stake on a boundary line appear in the Bible? Huh? And what? In the garden. God said there is a tree in the midst of the garden. You will not pass the boundary. This is really amazing. I've given you this before. God says there's a tree in the midst of the garden don't go beyond the boundary and eat of that tree. And he said, I've got the tree planted in the middle of the garden. You know where the tree is in our life? It's in the middle of our life. And we, are one, we have a desire to go after it every day. I make it a Christmas tree because that's where it started right there. This was all in the world all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh the lust of the eye and the pride of life and there's a marker on that you cannot go in there and eat of that tree Eve saw a tree that was good for food it was pleasant to the eye and make her wise and she could be proud of herself these are the same things John says in 1 John 2.16. It's like just because you get to John in the New Testament don't mean God has left the same attitude of this stake on the boundary line. You cannot go inside that boundary and cross that because if you do, you're going to be eating unlawfully, aren't you? The word iniquity in the New Testament the word iniquity is the word anomia every time you find it anomia is a construction of the word nomos nomos which is the word law in the Greek it means lawful prescribed 
it has to be prescribed by God. Lawful prescribed food for, for animals, and we are sheep. The law is our food. It reminds me of when Jesus told the apostles, I have a meat to eat of that you don't know anything about in John 4. And my meat is to do the will of the Father. That's my meat, is to do. Do we have to do the law? Can you kill? Can you lie? Can you bear false witness? People say, the law's done away with you. You're ignorant. Do we make void the law through faith? Yea, we establish the law. It's the last verse of John, the third chapter. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself, and love is agape, and that's walking in God's commandments. Anomia, placing the alpha privity in front of law, means unlawful food. It means no law. People who are involved in iniquity are going beyond the boundary line. This would be the mark of the beast. This would be where the beast, the serpent there in Genesis 3 and 1 is more subtle than any beast of the field. That word serpent Nakash comes from the same spelling, another word that means to enchant. I like what one writer said. He said, Nakash means to kill with the eye. Idolatry, lust of the eye, idolatry. Idololatria means to serve latruo what you look at. So when you're serving what you see, you're going and you're eating of the tree of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and a pride of life. That word pride, A-L-A-Z-O-N-I-A. That's one of the words for pride in the New Testament. It means self-esteem. You're not supposed to be esteeming yourself or lifting yourself up. You're supposed to be crucifying self. Isn't that correct? We have to be crucifying self. So the mark of the beast was here in the garden. It was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's the mark that'll be on men's hearts. It's not a computer chip. We got something a lot stronger than a computer chip. It's called DNA. But it's stronger than DNA. It's something that God writes in our hearts, and he does it right in the hearts. When they have the mark of the beast, they're going to have the character of the beast, and they're going to be eating of what's unlawful food, self. I preach against self more than anything else. I have been as guilty of self as anybody here. Has anybody been guilty? You will. You willing to own up to that? Until you repent of self, you you can never build up yourself. You're never supposed to do that. You know that's all it calls envy and arguments among God's people is self. Uh, 
Well, they're trying to outdo me. They're trying to take from me. And I have a right because look at my speed. See what I can do? It reminds me of that verse. Who maketh thee to differ from another? Who gave you whatever talent you have? Some of you guys are good at music. But who gave you that? And what dost thou have that thou didst not receive from God? And if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as though thou hadst not received it from God? Why are you taking credit? Mary has been painting a lot lately. She's a very good artist. She paints all kinds of pictures. Very good. But she got that from God. She can't take credit for that. That's something that God just puts into a certain person. He gave me a voice to sing it. He had to take that away from me in order to get my attention. Sometimes God will give you something just so he can take it away saying, Now who do you think's in charge now? Now we're talking about this Phragis and this Karagma. Let's read some more out of chapter 9 see if we can see something about this and notice who he puts the mark on that won't be destroyed look here in verse 4 and the Lord said go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark a signature of ownership But notice he says, put it on. Upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst of Jerusalem. Those people that are repentant, mark them, we're going to spare them. That's what he says in Revelation 7. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite, nakab, kill. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. I did a paper on, did God pity, did God spare? God says, I am not going to spare. I have you as my people for 500 years. You have ignored me, gone after Baal and the Grove and Shemosh and Molech and Venus and Hercules and all the rest of these gods. And you haven't listened to me. I'm going to destroy you. I believe God's on the verge of destroying America. That says he kills right there. Huh? It says God. As says, God kills right there, like Mary said. God kills. Well, who is going to be left in... Who's going to be left at the very end of Israel as a nation? Who will be left? Huh? Well, it will be, but it will be the poor, the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, the same people that followed David... If you remember when David was running from Saul in 1 Samuel, I believe it's about the 22nd chapter, first verse there. I think it is. 22nd chapter. And Saul is chasing David. 
Yeah. In the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel, and David was running away from Saul, and he says in verse 2, And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto David unto him and became a captain over them and there were with him about 400 people that's when David was running from Saul now you can compare that over here when you look at 2 Kings the 25th chapter you can see who's going to be left in Israel 2 Kings the 25th chapter 2 Kings 25 I'm not 25, 24, excuse me. In the 24th chapter, in verse, 13, verse 14, this was the second deportation in Israel. This is the one where Ezekiel was probably carried away. This is the one where Jehoiakim was carried away. Verse 14, he carried away all, all Jerusalem, all the princes, all the mighty men, anyone who could be in charge, organize an army of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, so nobody could make weapons against the king of Babylon. None remained save the poorest sort of people of the land. So all that left is the poor in the land. Remember in the 40th chapter of Jeremiah when Jeremiah had preached for 40 years and Nebuchadnezzar came in. You want to read a real touching story about what happens when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and Jeremiah is confronted by the commanding general, by the captain of the host of Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Nebuzaradan. Nebuzaradan came in and found Jeremiah. Nebuzaradan. Kind of looks like Nebuchadnezzar, but it's not. That is his captain of the host. That means he is the commanding general of Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar got the word from Nebuchadnezzar over here in Babylon he met with Nebuchadnezzar and said Nebuchadnezzar my commander there's a man over there in Israel his name is Jeremiah he's tried to warn Israel that I'm coming and they have not listened to him he said when you get there you find this Jeremiah you watch over him and take care of him he's an honest man And Nebuchadnezzar met with Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, the king told me to take care of you. He said, you tried to warn these people. They ignored, they ignored Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was their savior. All they had to do was pay tribute to him, taxes, 
for their roads or whatever upkeep they need and he was their protector they ignored Nebuchadnezzar and tried to go over here to Egypt and tried to make friends and play footsie with the Pharaoh Pharaoh Necho of Egypt there Jeremiah said don't you go to Egypt you get over here stay 70 years in Babylon and then God's going to bring you back under the Persian kings and they ignored Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to come in and slaughter them they ignored him they ignored God they thought we'll live our life the way we want have you ever been that way (laughs) well that's what they were unbelievable Read that 40th chapter of Jeremiah when you get home. That is, it make you cry. Nebuchadnezzar coming in and saying, Jeremiah, we know you're a good man. Nebuchadnezzar told me to take care of you. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar said, if you want to go to Babylon, we'll give you land, houses, whatever you want. Or you can stay here in the land. We're going to take care of you. And Jeremiah said, I'll just stay here with the poor. That's all that's left. So when you see this man marking, he's just marking the ones that weep and cry, and they're repentant. Let's go back to this verse 6 of chapter 9 of Ezekiel. Slay utterly old and young, maids, little children, women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark who has the signature of God how does God put that signature on us well let's read a little more and begin in my sanctuary then they began at the ancient men which were before the house the 25 men that were having a sunrise service does something happen to those 25 men in chapter 8 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Flip on over. I'll come back to that. Flip on over to chapter 11. Look at verse 1. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the east gate. Now, he's not coming into the east gate. He's in Babylon, and God has shown him the east gate over here in Israel. I don't know whether he took him bodily or by spirit, but he saw what was going on. And brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house, which looketh eastward, and behold, at the door of the gate, five and twenty men. The same 25 men that's having a sunrise service in verse 16 of chapter 8. Five and twenty men among whom I saw Jehazamah, the son of Azur, Pelatea. Boy, these guys are in trouble in eternity with God. The son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that despise mischief against God. They're having a sunrise service. And give wicked counsel unto the city, which say, 
Judgment's not near in America. They might not have said America, but they said in Israel. Let us build houses. We're going to be okay. Nebuchadnezzar's not coming. Sounds just like that false prophet in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. He said, you'll only be over there for two years. And God told Jeremiah, tell that man I'm going to kill him before the year's up. And he did. This city is a cauldron and we be flesh. We're going to house this city and they're not. Now let's go back over here to the ninth chapter. And he said unto them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain. You got them all over inside the temple. Kill them all. Kill everybody in there. God is not saying, they've already defiled my house. Just kill all the Levites that's inside. Fill the courts with slain and go you forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. I've got a paper up here. And you can read through it. And it'll tell you all about. God does not. God does God do evil? And he said over and over again. I will not pity. I kept you. I delivered you from Egypt. And I'm not going to pity you. You had no pity for my name. For me delivering you. I won't pity. I'm going to kill your men. Your women. And your children. In that 13th chapter of Hosea, when the Assyrians came in to carry northern Israel away, the Bible says they ripped the bellies of the women open, pulled their babies out, and dashed their brains out on the streets of Jerusalem. You think you can get by living wrong? As a believer, if you're a worldly person, your vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, you can get by a lot of things until the judgment. But you and I as believers can't get by, just like Israel couldn't get by. He says over and over again, I won't pity any of these people. I've got a bunch of these. I'll give everybody one if you want. It's about does God create evil? He says over and over again in the Old Testament, I create all this evil. Does it sound like he's creating evil here? I guess he is. He said unto them, Defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass, while they were slaying them, this is instruction from God off the altar from between the cherubim. And I was left that I fell upon my face and cried and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel? In thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem. Does that sound like God will do evil? Does that sound like God will kill people? Therefore will I make thee sick and smiting thee cause of thy sin. The charismatics say God won't create evil. Read the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy where he says, If you don't keep my commandments and my statutes, I'll bring every kind of disease upon you. God is saying that to Israel. Verse 9, Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah 
He's not talking about pagans. He's talking to Israel and Judah. Is exceeding great. For 500 years they've gone after this Christmas system. And God's going to do this to Israel and he wants us to do it. And the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. Israel is twisted. Well, does that sound any different than America? The preachers in America are perverted. You tell them God creates evil. What does that mean? What does it mean? When he said, I make peace and create evil, I of the Lord do all these things. You tell them about predestination. Well, it don't mean that. It means something else. You ignorant people. It just goes all over me. They say, we're Bible-believing, conservative, Bible Christians. No, you're not. If you are, you'd believe the Word of God when He says it. Do you believe that you have to have a daily cross or you can't be a follower of Christ? He said that. I didn't say that. Do you believe you have to go through tribulation? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow is the basic same word as tribulation. For some reason, people write to me and say, Well, you say, I didn't say that. Paul said it. Jesus said it. Do you think you have to be hated? Jesus said, If the world hated me, it will hate you. Do you think you have to be, that this narrow way is difficult? Peter said, If the righteous scarcely be saved, Mogus, M O G I S, scarcely comes the word molis it means with great difficulty why is it difficult on us because we're in the straight the stenos way and we're being pressured on all sides if you're not pressured by your family by your friends something's wrong with your life either that or you're just a young baby believer and if you're not going through the narrow way narrow Philebo. This is what these people were. These people that were sighing and grieving over Israel's sin. In this ninth chapter of Ezekiel. You can't skip along and just be a good person. You can't just, Mary said, you can't skip along and just be a good person. I don't cuss much and I don't drink much and I don't smoke much. What? Should you be cussing at all? Never. Is anybody here let out a cuss word once in a while? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You got to stop that. Now the rest of you want to raise your hand. Charday <laughs> always raises her hand. I believe she's really. Don't matter. God knows. Yeah. God knows. That's right. Does any of you here lose your temper and get real unreasonable with your enemies? Pray God help me to get over myself. That was the people here that were mourning and it was just a few. That verse 4 is so powerful. The men that sighed for the abominations of Israel, those are the ones marked them. What was I? Verse 9. Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. 
Ezekiel is, is in the middle of this deportation. The worst is yet to come. He's somewhere around 594 B.C. Just six or eight years later, everything is going to come down on Israel. Nebuchadnezzar and his and the greatest army of his day is going to come in and level Jerusalem and carry everyone away captive. When they carried them away captive, can you imagine Israel marching away, their hands are tied behind their back, they're virtually naked, maybe just a loincloth on them, and they're marching them 600, 650 miles away to Babylon, and they look back, and their temple's gone, and the Jerusalem's gone, and the walls are down, and it's burning. How did they feel? Can you imagine that? They get to Babylon, they got no way to worship God. Is that what you want? God will take it out of your life where you won't have any way to worship Him because you're unwilling to bow to Him. And then he says, they're full of perverseness throughout Israel. Boy, when you read Ezekiel, he's laying it down, isn't he? Verse 10, And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have any pity on anybody. You have to be mourning and being sad and being crying and weeping for Israel's sin. That's what Daniel did in Daniel 9. That's what Ezra did in Ezra the ninth chapter. Ezra said, we have sinned God. It wasn't Ezra, but he put himself in with the rest of the people. I don't know, I'll read it again. Then said he unto me, verse 9, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, because I'm causing it. And the city full of perverseness, for they say the Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord doesn't see what we're doing or what's going on. You'll find that among the prophets. They kept saying, The Lord doth not know, He doth not see. And the scripture says in Psalms, He that made the seeing eye, shall he not see? He that made the hearing ear, shall he not hear? You think I'm just too small in this great scheme of things for God to be worrying with my sin? God has got his finger on every one of us. He knows exactly what it takes to get your repentance. And as for me, mine I shall not spare, neither shall I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. I'm going to bring it upon Israel's head. For going at, are we going after other gods? Idolatry means to serve what you see. Are we serving what we put into our eyes and our ears? This is a message for the believer. Because this is believers that God is crushing. And behold, the man clothed with linen which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. Now let's go to, Re- to Revelation 7. How is God going to put his seal? Before I go there, let me go over here to Ephesians. Ephesians 
the first chapter before I go to the seventh chapter. I want to talk about being sealed, and I want to show you what we're sealed with. His signature is up on us. You think it's because he's written in fleshy tables of our hearts? That is his signature on his people? Well, he writes. That's his signature. Look here. Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 13. When you get into the word seals, fragizo, this is what we're sealed with. Ephesians 1. he's talking about predestination he's talking about in this chapter how that we've been adopted well verse 3 says verse 3 says we're blessed he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy hagios and without blame, Amamos, holy. Without blame. Without blame, Amamos. Blameless. Mamos means to blame. Amamos means no blame. Holy, Hagios. Pure, single. The only way you're made holy, pure or single, God gets you down to one person, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, is putting you through the fire. You got you need more fire. God help us. Reminds me of the man that was being burned at the stake in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and he was cooking all over and all they did was put green limbs around him which all that does is smoke and he was just cooking slowly like something on a grill and bubbling and his juices running down and he yelled out real loud for God's sake give me more fire kill this body the thing that makes you miserable is you keep trying to live in the flesh and you try to live in the spirit at the same time and you need to cry out, oh God, give me more fire, get rid of me. That's what makes you so miserable. I got to have this and this and this and I got to have her and him and this car and that house and this money and that job and we're not content with such things as we have, are we? Let's read on here. Then he says, According as he had chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love, in agape. Well, that's not hereafter, that's here. Agape is walking in the commandments of God. The only thing that will make you walk in the commandments is more fire. Get enough fire in your life and you won't want to live this life anymore. I am tired 
of this life in this world. At 80 years old, I'm what? I have literally, my life has been like a panoramic movie. I'm so tired of Jim Brown and trying to fulfill him. He, he has been, he's just been a problem to me. Trying to get what I want. And then he says, having predestinated us in the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He's predestinated us unto adoption. Huiothesia, H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A. This is a construction of huios, U-I-O-S. There's a breathing sound, huios there. And tithame. It means to place, Tithomai place, Huyas, sons. You don't place yourself as a son when you're being adopted. You go to a, an orphanage, and the person that's wanting to adopt does the choosing. He chooses who he wills, and he adopts. It's his power to adopt, not ours. So we've been adopted as children, and he requires some things from us. According to his good pleasure, so we can be the praise of his glory and grace, wherein he hath made us accepted. He has made us acceptable to him. And then he says down here in verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, claro, Nomia means a lawful portion. Claros, portion, nomos, lawful portion. You're only lawful if you're adopted into the family. Claro, Nomia. Nomia, we get that from nomos, means law, claros, means a portion. We have a legal portion with God. But he requires something from us. And he, we've obtained an heirs being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel, the purpose, boule, of his own will. Will, the lama. The lama means determination. He's determined who will be but. While we are his, look what he says after this. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ and whom also ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also, after that we believed, you were sealed, sphagizo, sphagis. We have the seal of God on us, and look what it is. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What is the Holy Spirit? Sealed. That's what they would do when they would make an official statement, put it in a scroll, and stamp it with the king's seal, and you couldn't open it. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit 
the truth. Just like a boat was sealed, just like a boat was pitched within and without with pitch. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word promise, ep angelia. Ep, A-G-G-E-L-I-A. It is a form of angelos, which is the word messenger, A-G-G-E-L-O-S. That's the word angel, means messenger. And everywhere you find promises, this word epangelia. Ep is the word epi. It means to cover or superimpose, cover our life with, and it goes to a specific person. That's not some general promise to the world. He seals us with the Holy Spirit and he puts that promise upon his family that's been predestined. Now let's go over here to Revelation 7. So that's what our sealing is. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this. How much time do I have, Mike? No, I ain't going to make it. But we'll work on this. I want you to see what this is about. This is about you and I as God's believers. He's not going to let you stay where you are. You are where you're supposed to be, but you're not supposed to stay there. It's kind of like a car is going down the road, but that's not where it's supposed to be. It's going 40 miles an hour down the road. It's going somewhere. You're going somewhere. It's not like, well... I'm here in Nashville, and I'm going to go to Los Angeles. How you going to get there? Oh, I don't know. I'll just be there one day because I believe it. <laughs> no, you're not. you got to get on a highway. you got to get on I-40 and go out there, or you got to fly out there, or you got to get some boat that'll take you through these river channels and get you out there some way, you're not just going to be there one day. There's a narrow way full of tribulation that you must go through. And that tribulation is a daily cross. If you do not have a daily cross, which is the same thing as tribulation, you're not following Christ. I tell people that a lot. I said, did you know the Bible says, he that beareth not his cross and follows after me cannot be my disciple. You cannot. That is very, very important. You can't be a mathetase, is the word disciple. Mathetase means a learner. If you're not a learner, how are you going to obey God if you don't know what the truth is? You have to be obedient to God. We have to be obedient to the faith. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? You have to be obedient. That's being like Christ. That's what we're predestined to, to be like Jesus. 
You have to be changing every day. You have to be growing. If you use a cuss word once in a while, you need to say, Lord, help me to stop doing that. If you lose your temper once in a while, pray, God, help me not to do that. Because if you don't quit doing it now, you will quit doing it when you're 70. I promise you that. If you don't quit doing it by the time you're 70, you're going to be dead at 71. You understand that? If you don't stop losing your temper, passing judgment on the world, the only reason you're doing that and losing your losing your temper is because of jealousy or envy or something along that line. If you are where you are, you're supposed to be there. But you're not supposed to stay there. You're not to be content with no death to sell. When Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am in, I am therewith to be content. He didn't say that on his first missionary journey in Acts 13. That's not where he said that. He was in a Philippian, he was in a Roman jail when he said in Philippians 4, 11, I have learned. It took me a lot of years to learn to be content. Autarcase is the word content. Boy, I put this on the board so many times. Have you noticed how Ezekiel 9 is not just about Israel, it's about us? Have you noticed that? You need to be mourning over sin. You need to be sorry for sin. And I don't mean you need to say, did you hear that? Don't turn to somebody behind you and say, here, this is for you. No, it's for you. (laughs) Don't say this is for them. I was going to say something. I forgot what it was. All right. Repentance, blaming somebody else for your sin is not going to get you forgiveness. Saying, well, the fault is, I've told the story about being in the hospital in my mid-40s. The first time I ever owned up to my sin out loud. And God had me in the hospital at 45, and I thought I was dying. I sat up on the hospital bed, and I said, Lord, the fault is mine. If I don't stop doing what I'm doing, if I don't stop trying to be rich in real estate, you're going to kill me. I had to own up to me. Have you ever tried to own up to yourself? And say, boy, I've sure been a fool. It's not like if you say that, somebody's sitting next to you, say, you sure have. Well, so have you. We've all been... There's no temptation taken one man, but such as has come to all men and all women. The Bible says that. It's common to all of us. So let's don't point a finger at the other guy. Let's say, boy, I got a lot to deal with with me. Don't we? I know this don't feel good, but I've had to deal with me. And it's not fun dealing with me. But once you find out that everybody else is in the same boat, you don't feel so bad. 
Now let's go back over here to Revelation 7. Do I have any time, Mike? I'm not going to get very far with this. Uh. Verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. I believe these four angels are the four creatures. They're not literal creatures. It's the four cherubim on each end of the Ark of the Covenant or inside the temple four angels here's the holy of holies there's the ark of the covenant this was the most important piece of furniture in Israel you had the seven candlesticks which is a picture of the church you had the table of showbread we being many are one bread and one body and you had the the golden altar which was the prayers of the saints and they had to offer up sweet smelling savor to God but this was the important piece of furniture the law was written on tables of stone now what God does he writes upon fleshy tables of our heart you know what I believe that is the seal of God he seals our hearts he sfragizo he writes upon our hearts if he does the writing the original books of the Bible when Paul wrote Romans Corinthians Galatians Ephesians Philippians Colossians the original letter that he wrote was called the autograph. We don't have any autographs yet left. We only have one autograph. We only have one signature. Signature shows your authority over something, doesn't it? Somebody says, sign this contract, and you sign it. That means I'm responsible when he puts his signature upon our hearts, that's the sfragizo. And what did we say a while ago? The seal was the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.13. Isn't that it? Well, when he writes upon our hearts, isn't that God's seal? That's absolutely his seal. Where did that start? This chapter is going to talk about sealing God's people. In fact, I've got so much to say about this. When you get down, he says, well, let's read some of this. I'm going to come back and talk about the four angels. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Back then, they believed all the earth consisted of was just the Mediterranean region. There was no America. There was no South America. There was no... It was there, but it didn't have anything to do with the Bible. Oh, let's go back here. This was 
the world as far as they were concerned. The four corners. One, two, three, four. The beast comes out of this sea. And there were four winds. It was the north wind, the south wind, the west wind, the east wind. That's why you got the four winds here. I got a lot to say about winds. Winds were not only considered winds, they were under God's control. And it was when God brought an army in to carry somebody off into captivity or to destroy them. God not only says of Babylon, uh, I misquoted something last week, but he says in Jeremiah 18 and 7, I will scatter Israel with an east wind. Before their enemies, I will show them the back and not the face. He's saying, I'm going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar from the east. He'll come from the north, from this way. I'm going to scatter them with an east wind. He calls Nebuchadnezzar an east wind. So when he holds the winds back, holding the four winds of the earth. I believe the four winds is not just talking about, he's talking about the four winds are going to bring judgment, but he says, I want God's people sealed first before the judgment comes. So each one of us in our lifetimes are going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the truth. He's going to mark our hearts I believe that is the seal of God upon his people. And where did that start? It started back over here in Deuteronomy 6. This is the seal of God. Deuteronomy 6. This is where people come up with this. I'll read you just a couple of verses here. In Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, God says, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Do you love God that much? And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. When I get together with y'all, that's just about all we talk about. When thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and of thy gates well the Jews took this literally and they made phylacteries and put a little box with this verse and with when Exodus 13 and 16 in Ezekiel 3 and 9, and they put them in a little box with these verses out of Deuteronomy 6, and they put them on their hand, and they called them phylacteries. 
and they mean protection. We have something called prophylactics. And that means for protection. That's what it means. See, everything we got comes out of the Greek language. And they said, if I put these on, and they wrapped them, they put a black box on their arm, wrapped it around their left arm so it would be closest to their heart. Ridiculous. And they put one on their forehead. To put on the forehead, this is where the mark of the beast or the seal of God comes from. It's what a man does, but he wasn't saying, put a little black box on your head and put one on your arm. He's saying, whatever your hand finds to do with you, might do it to the glory of God, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when you have the the seal of God upon you. It's Christ written in fleshy tables of the heart there in in Hebrews the the eighth chapter in Hebrews the eleventh chapter that is God's seal and that'll be the mark the mark of the beast is going to be taking on that that stake of the boundary line that God forbid in the garden all that's in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life God doesn't change the subject amazing then let's read it here just a little bit more in the 7th chapter. I saw another angel ascending from the east, verse 2 of chapter 7 of Revelation, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees. This is not something, this hurt is not going to come upon nature. It's going to come upon the people that have the mark of the beast, all that's in the world, till we have sealed the servants of our God and their foreheads with the Holy Spirit of promise. And I heard the number of them that were sealed. And he goes out of 12,000 out of each tribe. I'm out of time. Only one thing wrong with this 12,000 out of each tribe. Levi's numbered here and Levi was never numbered with the tribes I'll go into that next week I hope you can see how that it just takes some definition to find out what these things mean let's pray Father thank you for truth cause us to continue this work stop any enemies that come up against it. Fight our battles, Lord. We can't fight them. We can't fight the enemy. Stop anyone who would hinder your work here. Open up doors for this ministry. We'll praise you for everything that you do. Cause the church to realize they have to put down this idolatry of self. We'll give you praise for everything in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to keep going in this seventh chapter. There's a lot to it.
mercy. Thank you for being honest. We have a hard time. We have a hard time, don't we? Yeah, all the time. That's what trying to get closer to you guys. How are you doing? Hanging on. Ephesians, Ephesians 1 would negate water baptism, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's because we're sealed. That's what we're baptized with. What you doing there, girl? Because I wanted to show you this because I always wondered what that little box was. That's a phylactery there. That's what it is. It's got those verses I mentioned. That's their phylacteries. They think that's going to protect them against... Yeah. It's phylacteries. I got them on their arm and right on their forehead. That's not what God's talking about. He's talking about having it in your mind. Yeah, they're supposed to be real conservative, but they're not. Keeping all the rituals. Where you going, guy? Hey, bud. And you want some gum? Well, let's go up here and get some. Uh, what kind do you want? You want the green or the yellow? Huh? You want some green? Here you go. Your sisters want green? Take them all some green. Good to see you again. Good to see you. We went on a ten day vacation. Uh, which I just do not go on again. Yeah, me. Family. I don't want to go to the Kentucky State line. Huh? <laughs> I don't want to go to the Kentucky State line. I love you. I love you too. Great great talk today. I love you, brother. Made me feel guilty. And guess what? Good. I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, repent. You want some gum? Of okay. course she does. I brought it with me. That went and passed Look it out this. as I go. This guy's you want some gum? Good. No. But okay. thank you anyway. <laughs> I'm good. What you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I started to come by your house the other day, but I figured, well, ain't nobody home. When was that? I, I don't know, Friday or something like that. I, I, oh, did you actually go by? Well, I started to. I got down to your street. I thought, they ain't at home during the day. I am. Oh, are you? I am. Hey, Steve. How are you? Hanging on. Hanging on. That's what we're all doing. I love you, girl. <laughs> you should have a table of the nations on that street. When you're going through all the hey, what's going on? Not much, brother. You're doing I heard right. y'all going to go down to Texas. We did, yeah. We've been there. Did you find anything? Yeah, yeah. you got to be careful with a lot of these guys. They say they have miracle answers, and they don't. Well, this guy we went to see, he's been doing it almost 50 years, and he does. His, okay. his, we've had testimonials from people. He can actually cure it, but it's terribly expensive. It's for the wealthy. No, yeah. we're not wealthy, but we're going to do our best. Well, are you going to spend everything you got and then not have a rest to finish it? 
Well, we spend everything we got. Hopefully, that'll do it. <laughs> it's going around seventy thousand dollars a month for a year. Mary so it's almost a million dollars. I, I don't mean to throw any cold water on anything, but you know, Steve McQueen went down to Mexico for a miracle cure of cancer, and it, it didn't work. Right, right. This has been. This guy has been proven, though, and, and I, I think. I feel good about it, but uh, it's, it's a Is he a doctor or what? Yeah. Host. Why do they charge so much? Because it's not uh, FDA approved. Yeah. The, the FDA won't approve it. And Jim, that's a long, long story. You get a chance, look him up on YouTube. What's his name? Dr. Brzezinski. Brzezinski? It's a cancer cure cover-up. It's about a two-hour documentary. But a cancer was, cure cover-up. I, I think I remember that. About, about the way it's all about money. It's all about self. How you doing, Chip? What's going on? Anything? Yeah. But do that. Look it up and just cover up. Cancer cure cover up. Cancer cure cover up. Okay. There's a lot of information. In Dr. Brzezinski. I will, need to write that it'll, down. It'll make, you, it'll make you so irritable at society. Well, I know how doctors are. I've been so many. It's all about the money. It's all about money. They want everybody to go through that chemotherapy because chemotherapy is their number one drug. It's a trillion dollar a year industry, and that's why they want to prove these. I'll look that up. I wrote it down. The problem is does not. I just hope it's not some scam. No, it's not. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm not there yet. I'm just. I'm still hoping that it just doesn't grow, and it just. And I just. I'm just so scared out. Sorry to make it yesterday. What do you do? We were waiting for you. You know, Cormier lost his title. That's her. How you doing? Her, her second round? No, in the fourth round. He, he, but it looked real even. Okay. And it looked like as fast and strong as Cormier was that he was going to beat Miosic. But he started. He's forty years old. He was wearing out by the time he got to the fourth round. What was um, what was it? Uh, Takedown choke? No, he just knocked. He just kept knocking him out. Finally knocked him out. I've never. Isn't he like is a power man. But so is Cormie though. Yeah, he is. He absolutely is. They're going, but I'm glad he won because they're going to have to have another Rematch, fight. Yeah, That's they're going to have to. What are you doing there, guy? Oh, I'm doing all right. How about you? <laughs> I can't get well. No. I'm just tired all the time. Yeah. I started to come by the other day, but I thought it's the middle of the day. I thought nobody's going to be home. <laughs> she said, well, I was home. Yeah, she's usually home. Uh, well, come see Delilah and the dogs. We just we just struggling with our health. You know that, Scott. We just struggle all the time. We don't ever get over it. 